So if I can accurately name my emotion, then I can better try and check in with what is it that I need? Because then that's where I start building the plan of what I'm going to do to take care of myself after this experience. Welcome back to That Vet Life. This week on the podcast, I am talking with veterinary social worker, Serena Manifold. Serena is a licensed clinical social worker who works with animal care professionals offering grief support. In this episode, we're talking about grief and compassion fatigue and how it impacts your career as a veterinarian. You'll hear me share a recent case where I experienced the loss of a patient and share the lessons that can be learned to help care for yourself and your team when you go through similar events in your career. There is a lot to unpack here. I had a fantastic time chatting with Serena, so let's get into it. All right. So, hey, Serena, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. As we were talking before, I've been looking forward to recording this episode ever since we first connected. And I don't know, this is just something that has been sitting on my mind for the last couple of years and talking with veterinary students and new grads, just their thoughts and their fears about going into practice specifically around this topic of grief management. So before we fully dive into that, you want to just give us a quick rundown of what your current role is and what you're doing with the profession right now? Sure. Well, thank you for having me, Mariah. It's an honor to be invited to be on the podcast and to talk about something that a lot of people don't in our society don't like talking about. And it's a passion of mine. And it's a passion because I have a passion for helping professionals, specifically animal care professionals. So what I do right now is I have a private practice in North Carolina, and I currently see a lot of people for a lot of different things because of the pandemic. There's a lot of people that are reaching out. My area of specialty is grief and bereavement. So I see a lot of people who are coming because of either an impending loss or after a loss has occurred. And some of those losses don't have to be by death. It can be loss of job. It can be loss of health. But I also still have, because I have a passion for the animal care community, I also see a lot of veterinary professionals, animal care professionals outside of the veterinary setting. So I work with some animal shelters. I work with some veterinary clinics and I work with, like I said, some veterinarians and some veterinary technicians one-on-one, sometimes in groups. Um, sometimes it's a workshop, just providing support because I have a passion for it. And my areas of expertise as a vet social worker are in the realm of grief and bereavement and compassion fatigue management. And so you are literally the perfect person to be talking about with this. And like, just the fact that you have such a passion for not only like grief management, but for veterinary professionals and animal care professionals. So to dive into this, we're going to look at the topic of grief management. Um, I'm going to share one of my own recent cases that this played a role in. And for these veterinary students who are listening, like for you guys, like we are going to talk through like, how do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you plan before these things happen? How do you care for yourself in that moment? How do you care for your team during all of this? And then also, how do you care for that client that's also involved? So a couple different things that we're going to cover here today. So Serena, like going through this story, I talked with you about it a little bit before, but the case that we're going to use was something that I saw recently. It was a really, really poor prognosis case that needed a foreign body surgery, did the foreign body surgery, wanted them to come back for the recheck the next day. And of course, when the dog comes in, we're like, this is what we thought was going to happen. Ends up going that we have to run a code on this dog. And 
after many minutes of running <laughs> the full code, we're like, okay, we're not getting him back. I get on the phone with the client and because he, he had a CBR directive. So I call the client and I'm like, this is what's happening. I'm so sorry. I know we talked about this. However, I need your approval to stop CPR. And she's like, okay, stop CPR. So I'm like, okay, oh, this has happened. I go back into my team. I tell them, all right, I've got the approval. We're stopping CPR. Everyone stops what they're doing. As I'm going to drop the youth is all just as the, the final bit there. We're looking at our ECG machine and he has a full like sinus rhythm come back. And we stare at it for probably a good five minutes because we want to make sure that's real. And of course, after that, I have the duty of calling this client back and saying, after we stop CPR, his heart restarted. However, with CPR and with cases such as where he is at, it's very likely he's going to code again. And it's very unlikely that we'll be able to get him back. But I still need your approval to, if he does code, would you like us to initiate CPR or would you like us to let him pass? And this poor client who I've just taken her through the process of telling her her dog had died and is now back to life is having to make a decision on how we move forward should he go through this again. And so in her mind, she's like many, many things are happening. I can hear this in her voice, but I have to let her say what's what she's going to think. And she's like, okay, I guess do CPR. And so I'm like, okay, that's our directive then. And um, about an hour and a half goes by. He's ticking away kind of steadily, honestly, but he's in a bad way. Like we know it is coming. And then the second code happens. And so we initiate CPR. We initiate um, all of our protocols. I get the phone, the client on the phone and I go through everything and basically saying like, it's very unlikely we're going to get him back. This is very traumatic to his body with everything that he's been through recently. And so she did, of course, say, okay, stop CPR. And of course, after that, we're like, okay, finally, like, it's done. And the big thing about this was like this entire time, we're talking like a two, three hour window between all of these events. And we have multiple nurses, multiple veterinary assistants who are literally bedside on this patient. They can't be off doing other things. They have to be bedside in case he coded. And so they've been standing there with him. I've been in and out of four or five different appointments through this whole process, coming back out, seeing how he's doing, going back in, being like, oh my gosh, look at your cute little puppy. That's a great little puppy. And blah, 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 blah. Coming back out, doing something else, going back in, doing an itchy ear or whatever, in and out, in and out. And so finally, when we get the okay to stop CPR, we finally let him pass, like, the waterworks came. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was just like, what is, there's like precipitation coming out of my eyes. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm already thinking about my next client, my next patient, because I'm behind, obviously. And um, thankfully, my team, they were like, just go outside, just go and have a good cry, go. And so I did that. And <laughs> I've spent a good couple of minutes out there, came back in, dried my eyes, made, looked at my client, my uh, teammate. And I was like, do I look like I've just been through what I've just been through? They're like, no, you look okay. And I'm like, you liar, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> Went back into my next appointment um, and continued on my day. And oh, goodness, like at the end of the day, when I finally got home, like I crashed so hard. I slept very well, thankfully. <laughs> but 
I didn't really realize how exhausted I had become from that day. Mm -hmm. And for me in GP, like that is not a common occurrence. Like we do not run multiple codes on a patient every day. And so dealing with that level of emotional, not trauma, but a little bit of trauma, like that was just something that thinking back on it, I was like, oh my gosh, thank goodness this happened like where I am at practice right now and not as a fresh out of school new grad. I don't know if I could have handled it at the same level had I actually been a new grad. So as I was thinking through this, I was like, okay, what do we, like, how do we talk to these veterinary students and these new grads about the fact that, okay, maybe in the line of work that you're in, these kind of scenarios are few and far between, Mm -hmm. at least the like crashing patient, CPR, like, dead and back to life, like that is a very unique situation. Right. However, there are different types of grief and different types of loss that will happen on different levels, multiple times a month, maybe, Mm -hmm. um, to a degree, whether that is losing a longtime patient to end-stage cancer or having a tough conversation with a client, like, and even personal life things that happen. So they're, they're going, it's not a matter of if they happen, it's a matter of when they happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So from your perspective, hearing my kind of story, where do we start with all of this? Like, how do we talk about these kind of things to veterinary students when they're still in school? Great question. And thank you for sharing the story. Because like you said, even though the scenario that you shared is probably going to be rare for many. It still can happen. And so, ah, like, let's talk about it. What might I do if that thing happens to me? And I I know that there have got to be many vet students who leave their training from vet school never having been a part of CPR, because even though that might be more of an occurrence in a specialty hospital where you receive your veterinary training while you're a student, you may not still be on that rotation when that thing occurs. And so you may leave and now it's like, oh, I've never run a code before. I don't know what to expect because are they doing that? I know that some schools try and offer labs where that's it's a simulation so that people get used to it. And yet, I don't know that that happens everywhere. So I think that one, proactively, could we bring in if we're like, okay, I know this doesn't happen very often, but if we're a general practice, do we need to bring in trainers to help us like just hone in on the skills so that it is an opportunity to run through the actual like what we do in the event of CPR so that we get that muscle memory because then there's not like my brain doesn't have to do too much. And okay, that's only a part of it. Now it's the grief and the trauma because I mean, trauma is very subjective. It could be traumatic for some and and not all of the team to be performing a CPR code on a patient. And like you said, that's not the only kind of loss that occurs. It could be that it's the death of a longtime patient euthanasia or not. Maybe they, the owner brought them in, you know, already deceased and you haven't had time to wrap your head around it. Maybe it is not a long-time patient, but it's one that you've invested a lot of energy into trying to treat whatever's going on. And so it's that investment of time and knowledge and just emotions into a case, and that wears on you. Maybe it's a patient that reminds you of an animal that you have had in your past or present that can wear on you as part of the grief. And so I think it's being able to recognize like, and we're not always going to know in advance what 
triggers us per se. I mean, like I'm very careful about using the word trigger, but I think it can be important to say that we do get triggered with grief. And so it might be that there's a, a several factors that play into the grief experience because there's what we experience with grief. And it's so, one of the things I appreciate most about grief is that while every single one of us are grievers, at least once in our lifetime in the veterinary profession, it's going to happen more than once. And for many people, it happens more than once, regardless of your professional path. We are 100% of us are grievers. None of us experience the exact same kind of grief because every relationship is unique. And I think that for the veterinary profession, one of the things that I talk a lot about is that a loss of an animal is already falls into the category of disenfranchised grief. It's something that isn't generally understood. There's another layer of disenfranchisement that happens for animal care professionals who do care for their patients. This isn't an owned animal. I don't have a right to grieve the death of this animal. I mean, that's some of the self-talk that can happen for animal care professionals who do experience grief after the death of a patient, but they don't always really feel like they deserve to feel certain things because this isn't their animal. It's just a patient. You know, they try and rationalize. It's just a patient. The other pieces that are part of the story you shared that tie into, there's a nice overlap as as someone who's trained in veterinary social work. One of the things that is always on top of mind is, as I said, my two areas of specialty within the veterinary social work realm are grief and compassion fatigue support, is that there's a nice overlap, and nice isn't the greatest word, there's an overlap between grief and compassion fatigue. And I think that one of the things, if we look at it, that contribute to the burnout part is the emotional labor that happens with I've in the midst of my day, especially if I've got this coding patient, they're stable now, but I'm going into a room and sweet little puppy. And that's not necessarily the genuine feeling that I'm having in that moment, because I can't be like, I just had a really crappy day. Tell me what's (laughs) going on with your cute little, yes, your dog is cute, but you have to turn it on. And it doesn't 100% feel authentic. I'm not saying it's completely inauthentic either, but it doesn't always feel authentic to go into a room when you do have on the back of your mind, your crashing and burning patient, the appointment that you've got next, which is maybe a recheck or maybe it's a, a sick animal or whatever, you know, you, it's all of that. And so it mm-hmm. there is an overlap between our the grief that we can experience. And so not to overwhelm our new grads or, you know, like our current <laughs> vet students and our new grads, it is just like, a, okay, I have to be aware that this is the lay of the land. So what am I going to do with it? Because I cannot avoid yeah. it. And right now, like in vet schools, like sure, we do like communication courses, but we don't do grief management courses. We don't do, hey, this is going to be your reality. Right. And this is how you can... I don't know, is resiliency the right word for this? Like develop resiliency? Like, is that the word we're now using? I think that, yes, some people are using resiliency. I think it's just attending to, you know, like some people have a struggle with using this word resilient. So I think it's being able to find ways to manage the hits, if you will, There's a a woman named Susan David who has a book called Emotional Agility. So she doesn't talk about resiliency. She talks about agility, the ability to like keep going in the face of these things that are happening. It's not that these things don't happen. It's like, how do I keep going and be flexible and agile when these situations arise? So whatever word you want to use, whether it's resiliency or agility or flexibility. So another practice that 
I sort of use a lot with folks, it talks about building psychological flexibility. It's the idea of how do I build it so that I'm not breaking, I'm bending with all of the things that are coming at me, mm-hmm. which ties to focusing on my well-being, which doesn't mean I'm that bad things aren't happening, bad, quote unquote, bad things aren't happening. It's that when these things happen, that I'm aware of them and then I'm attending to them. And so with this, you recognize like, oh my gosh, I was so tired. In that moment, you listened to your body and what you did was you went home and you slept. (laughs) And I'm not saying that that is the only thing that you needed because there's probably more to it. Our grief doesn't just end in a day. It's like, oh, I got a good night's sleep. Sweet. Don't have to grieve anymore. It's in that moment, I'm listening to my body and I'm going, my body, what my body really needs right now is sleep. Sometimes Mm -hmm. what I listen to is that I need to go and hang out with friends because I don't want to be alone tonight. I need to laugh. I need to cry. I need to eat because I didn't eat all day because I was doing all these things and oops, didn't eat. And so it's how do I check in with, and I think that we talk a lot, I think there are some vet schools who are teaching well-being workshops within the curriculum. I think it's becoming more commonplace now because we know of about burnout because we know about compassion fatigue and grief plays into that experience. So I think even though we're not necessarily talking about grief, I think we can say it's going to be a part of it. And so whew, I've, I need to check in with myself today and go, what is it that I need? And that is tied to what I feel. So mm-hmm. being able to really ask myself. So when you were talking, my little instinct was going, okay, so as you're on the phone, after you get the sinus rhythm on the monitor and you're like, oh, and you got to call this client back, what's going through your head and what are you feeling in that moment? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what um, we were all kind of feeling in that moment and just... It was literally a, how do I, I was trying to think like, how do I say this to this client? Like, I'm also thinking about, oh my gosh, the roller coaster that I'm taking her through. I felt so bad, but of course, like it was nobody's fault. Like he was clinically dead. Yeah. Literally clinically dead. And then he wasn't. So yeah, it was just this, what am I feeling in this moment? I had no idea. It was just a little bit of panic little bit of gut-wrenching, a um, little bit of sadness for the client, and just wanting to crawl under my desk for a hot second <laughs> to try and avoid it all, but I knew I couldn't do that. Yeah. So thank you for sharing because that's all going through us rather quickly. And in that moment, we don't have the chance to go, oh, you know what? I'm going to just take care of me. I'm going to not call. You've got to call the client. And so yeah. I'm shocked and confused. I'm a little bit panicky. I'm, I feel sad. I'm going through a roller coaster. I'm now taking this client on a roller coaster and I need to get information from her about what to do next. I need to share information and I need to get information. And so these are those moments where it's like, okay, I am not necessarily processing exactly what I'm doing. So one of the tools that I'll just like start sharing now that can be really helpful for situations, whether it's a coding or a euthanasia or whatever is the ability to debrief afterwards. And so you ask like, how do you take care of yourself and how do you take care of the team? I think this can be done individually or in a team is this idea of we get together and we have a time where, and because if we have it scheduled, we know that these really tough cases, we're going to have time to talk about it. And as a practice, we're going to really make it 
an intention that we create space because if we don't, then we've got team members, including ourselves, who are feeling stuck with the emotional experience. And so being able to process in community can be really helpful because we know from the research on debriefings that it's the sharing piece in community that can help build that resilience mm-hmm. because I know I'm not alone because a lot of times we feel like I'm the only one that thinks this or feels this. Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Venex. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession. Much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our Vetex community. The Thrive community is a race accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of that Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. Oh, there's so many layers to that. I know. Oh, goodness. Because I know as a team, like we were like, okay, during rounds today, we're going to debrief about this code that happened, the whole case, like everybody in the hospital was sitting there from reception to kennel assist to all the doctors that were on staff that day. So we had the opportunity to medically debrief. Mm but we didn't necessarily take the time to emotionally debrief, which I did a little bit of that like on a personal level, because as you were talking, like the different like bullet points that I was pulling out from this was like as veterinary students, like sure, you're not going to necessarily go through the same thing. Maybe you'll be on a case that codes in vet school, but it's not your case. Right. It's not your responsibility. Like this case was my responsibility and it happened under my watch. So it hits completely different (laughs) than if it was in vet school. But as a vet student, things that you can be doing literally is like, okay, every day, like if something, if you feel like you're just off, like take that moment and really debrief with yourself. Like maybe it's after an exam. Maybe it's after a, like a, a lab that you did or just something that you need to check in with yourself and like practicing that kind of well-being mm-hmm. It becomes a pattern for you so that you don't have to put as as much intentional thought into it. It just kind of happens a bit more. Because again, like it's one of those things like sports training, what you do in practice is what you do in a game. So what you do in practice and how you take care of yourself, and I've said this to vet students in the past, like how you care for yourself as a vet student will translate into how you care for yourself as a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. And I never really put the put it into a sentence that the way that I learned to care for myself as a veterinary student entailed how I would then respond to grief instigating moments like this. So mm-hmm. I guess there was a little bit of work that I put into it without intentionally calling it like grief planning. I don't yeah. know what, the, what word I would use for it, but I guess like that is what I did technically. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Nice. Look at that insight happening. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you make a good point. It's the more we practice. And that's why a lot of when we talk about some of the in terms of well-being, we'll say, you know, like 
mindfulness practices. And we talk about those things just like you did with the sports analogy. The way you perform when the rubber meets the road is what you've been practicing all along. And so we often have this habit, things are going well, I don't have to worry about doing meditations and making sure I'm getting good sleep and, you know, making sure I'm attending to like playtime and, you know, doing all these things. I'm not intentionally doing those things because things are going well. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's in those moments when things are going well, that we absolutely have to have that intention to keep doing it because it becomes muscle memory. Yeah. It's like when the things are blowing up in front of us, I've got these skills I've been practicing and it doesn't take extra mental effort to engage in these practices because I've already been doing them. Mm-hmm. So beautifully said. And so what are people doing? And so the, the debrief, I appreciate you sharing like we medically debriefed. And I think that's where clinics are often doing that after a difficult case. They're And they're staying surface level with the, let's talk about the medical. And so in human medicine, they will have the round. But if there's a difficult case, there's something called short center rounds, which is bringing in somebody who's a trained facilitator that talks about the emotional components of it. And they do bring, and I'm glad to hear you say like everybody was there. It wasn't just the docs and the techs who were doing CPR. It was the receptionist. It was, you know, the whole team because everybody's got a different, you know, like role within when that animal presented to the clinic and then when the animal died. And people are aware, like even if they're not back in the treatment area Mm -hmm. doing CPR, they're aware or they've passed by and they've seen it and they're, oh, you know, like, so being able to participate interdisciplinary within the practice is really important. And so things that, and you don't have to have a trained facilitator to do this. One of the things we say is ask yourself, how do I feel? So really check in. And sometimes you need a list of feelings because it's like most of us in the research, because there's been a lot of research, an explosion of research, I would say over the last probably five to 10 years on um, the sort of emotional aspects of our being, we don't have emotion, that's called emotional granularity. We don't have the ability to name emotions beyond mad, sad, glad, happy, afraid. You know, like (laughs) maybe angry is in there, you know, but it still falls under like mad. So we have a really hard time. And there are a lot more feeling words out there because there is a difference between being angry and being enraged. There's a difference between being sad and being disheartened. And if people are interested, there's a a great book and in the book, and you could probably even Google it and get the image because I share it with a lot of people. There's a book called Permission to Feel by Dr. Mark Brackett, who's at the Harvard Center for Emotional Intelligence. And he and his colleagues have created this awesome graph of feeling words or chart of feeling words that's on uh, this axis, which is pleasant to unpleasant, because most of the time, you know, am I experiencing pleasant emotions or unpleasant emotions? So we talk about yeah. them not as good and bad, right or wrong. It's unpleasant and pleasant emotions. So most of the time we know this is one of those unpleasant emotions that I'm having. And then energy. So he has it on another axis. It's this is a high energy emotion or a lower energy emotion. And it's just so like, because you might not always know that this is the word to describe how you feel, but you know it's high energy and high unpleasant, which might be angry, frustrated, irritated, enraged. Disappointed is going to be a lower energy emotion, but not lowest energy. So it's just like, ah, I can look at this little image and go, oh, that 
that's where it is. That's where I'm falling. And really start mm-hmm. naming because when we accurately name our emotion, then because, and I think I've heard other guests on your podcast talk about this, our emotions, particularly the unpleasant ones are cues to unmet needs. They tell us that we have a need. And so if I can accurately name my emotion, then I can better try and check in with what is it that I need? Because then that's where I start building the plan of what I'm going to do to take care of myself after this experience. Oh my goodness. There are so many things that you're just talking about there that I'm like, ah, and my little nerd brain is like a graph. I can use a graph. Yes. You can use a chart. And sometimes it's really helpful to do that because it's like, I don't know how I felt. Mm-hmm. Let me check that out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. And that would be a really good thing to do just with vet students again to kind of walk through it. Cause again, practicing those kind of habits that maybe they don't like, they don't have the word for it yeah. of what their emotion is. But then like, again, like just practicing those kind of habits so that when they do get into practice, it just becomes more of a second nature thing to be like, okay, we're going to sit down as a team and maybe go through like the chart a bit more. Cause they don't have to be like, well, Dr. McCauley had a really hard time with this. And this obviously it's like, right. I don't like doing that. That makes me uncomfortable. But yeah. as a team to say, all right, this is where everybody's at today. As a result of everything that happened this morning, what do you guys need moving forward? And I bet you it's not a pizza party, which that's like a whole other episode. Right. right? Yeah. Like, um, is how do we take care of like, the team on that level. But in the moment, in that day, like, how would you talk to students about like caring for their team? Because again, as the doctor, A, the patient was my responsibility. The team is technically my responsibility. And it's my job to lead them and set an example as to how we respond to this client and respond to the situation. So like, for me, like, what would you talk to me about um, or recommend doing? Well, so starting with feelings, how did you feel? And being honest, like I don't have to go into the story. I can just say I felt sad. I felt panicked. I felt confused. I felt disheartened. I felt, you know, like whatever. Okay, great. Now, what went well? (gasps) That question, people are like, "Uh," because we automatically jump to what went wrong? What do I wish went? And we don't we often talk about it in what went wrong because our brains have Mm -hmm. a negativity bias. So we're constantly like, that's one of the things that after a loss occurs because now it's, it's often the primary loss is the loss of the patient, but then there's this loss of potentially identity because it's my patient. It was my job. I couldn't save them. So that may be some of the self-talk that's happening. I didn't do a good job communicating with the patient or with the owner about what was going on or, you know, like all of those things. And so we're we're automatically jumping to what I didn't do well. And so that can take Mm -hmm. us down a whole nother spiral with our grief. And so I think being able to say, all right, I'm intentionally going to start with what I think went well. That is a shift that we are trying to help with building the neural connections. It doesn't discount that there are things that we wish had been different about the situation that you know, may have contributed to some of the outcome or may not, but just that we wish had been different about it. Starting with what went well is really crucial that what went well, I didn't wait to call the client. I still went in and was engaged with my other patients of the day, even though I didn't want to, I did it. I took some time to go outside and cry. I, what went well? Oh, my team was there to support me. That was the thing that went well. Like my team noticed that I needed a moment and they were like, wow. 
So I can start identifying what went well. And maybe it's only one or two things. And yet being able to do that can be really helpful for creating this balance. It's not imbalanced because now it's not just focusing on what went wrong. So second question, what do I wish went differently? And again, intentionally saying, what do I wish went differently versus what went wrong? Because Mm -hmm. then that implies that there was something that we actually did that contributed to it. And maybe that's not always the case. So what do we wish went differently? Ooh, I wish this patient had not even gone through surgery. Being able to say that out loud. Oh my gosh, because maybe there's six other people who are like, yeah, I wish this patient hadn't had surgery. This was a poor prognosis. And and like, we kind of saw this coming and that sucks. Like, it's okay mm-hmm. to think that and say that. We don't have to tell the patient that or the owner that. We don't have to say that anywhere, but in the safety of our team. Now, with that being said, talking about feelings and talking about this, there is an aspect of psychological safety that's important. And if a team does not have that, if mistakes happen and they're not, we're not allowed to make mistakes on a team or people don't feel comfortable talking about how they feel, these kinds of debriefs are not uh, very helpful in the context of a group. So it's knowing, do we have a psychologically safe work environment? Because if we have a toxic work environment, probably not a good place to do it in a group. And these are good things to just ask yourself personally. So what do I wish went differently? And being able to not judge. So there's no judge. It's just being able to say, I wish that this patient didn't even have surgery. If that's the case for you, like there are definitely cases that I was a part of as a social worker that I was like, I wish the owner had elected to euthanize Mm -hmm. versus take it home. Like being able to say that and feel that and know that it's that's that is my personal perspective and I'm allowed to have that. I can put that out there, whether it's to myself or to a group and know that I'm not judging the client for the decision that they made. I'm just saying, I wish that this hadn't happened. I wish that that was different about this because that Mm. sucks. And then what did I learn? What do I want to, because there's this movement forward. How do I take this experience and move it forward? What did I learn? Ooh, I hadn't done CPR on my own. I learned that I can communicate in the midst of chaos. I can communicate pretty well with an owner. I learned that I can function with no food. I learned, you know, like it could be anything. It could be anything. And I learned that maybe I do need to take a breather after a case. You know, that might be something else too. And in that learning, it could be, what do I need? You know, and then we usually end with, what am I proud of? What's funny or what am I grateful for? So something that's like a pleasant experience, it's going to elicit a pleasant emotional experience for me because, and it doesn't have to be related to the case. It doesn't have to be related to work. It's, I am grateful for my animal, or I am grateful for the owner electing not to continue CPR or, you know, like I'm proud of myself that I did this for this patient, for this client. What's funny, you know, maybe there is something humorous that's happened in the day so that it's this, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm to build that, what you labeled as resilience and what some people call flexibility or agility is I can have a both and the crap of the day with also these other experiences. And that is important for grief because it is not all awful. Grief is often the conflicting experience that we have. It's the, this sucks and I'm relieved it's over. And when I have that relief that it's over, I feel guilty. Ah, no, I'm right back in this place. So it's being able to say both of these things can exist simultaneously. And there doesn't have to be a judgment for that. 
This has been so good for me, <laughs> just like listening to this after going through the case. But just with other cases that I've dealt with or watched my colleagues go through, and I'm like, okay, how do I care for them through these scenarios? Because again, it maybe wasn't my case. I maybe wasn't even involved in it, but I saw how it impacted them. Right. And so it, it provides tools and resources to, again, how I care for them in future cases. But then also I feel that this provided a wealth of knowledge for veterinary students just from the aspect of, okay, like we hear about these big, crazy cases that do happen. They're going to be few. They're going to be far between. However, you're going to deal with like lower, well, other or different Mm -hmm. types of grief. And so how do you as a veterinary student prepare for these things? And it's how you take care of yourself. It's how you practice caring for your team. It's how you practice your communication skills and your well-being now so that when you get in practice, yeah, these scary things are going to happen, but they'll maybe be a little bit less scary and you'll be able to recover from them much better or Mm -hmm. much differently than you would have elsewise. And so it'll just give you more solid ground to stand on as a new graduate. Mm -hmm. So this is like, honestly... I feel like we're never going to, we would never have enough time. No. In an episode to go all of this. Oh my gosh. So yeah. that's why I'm like, I'm like, okay, is this a good place to kind of, kind of end it? And then we say we're going to bring Serena back for another episode later in the season. Because again, there's too many things that yeah. even today we were like, oh, that's for another episode. Oh, that's for another episode. Yeah. Just because we couldn't do all of it. But I wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this. Like it is such a, important and deep topic that the conversation, if nothing else, I hope that this starts a conversation for veterinary students and within their universities. So out of there were a couple things that you, like you mentioned resource wise, but is there mm-hmm. anything additional that here at the end of the episode, you're like, oh, I want to make sure students know about this? Yeah. So and I don't know if you have like show notes for the podcast. Yeah. So and we'll, I'm, we'll I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy to and I can send links so that you can link it in your show notes that the chart that I was mentioning by Mark Brackett and colleagues. Also, some people are like, I don't know what I need because that's another thing that it's like, okay, you've had me identify the feeling and you're telling me that my unpleasant emotions are linked to unmet needs. I don't know what I need. So um, the Center for Nonviolent Communication has come up with a needs inventory, which is really also very handy. And I used to like when I worked at the University of Tennessee Vet School, I would I had a copy on my desk and every time I'd work with somebody and we'd be talking about needs and they'd be like, oh, I don't, ooh. I'd hand them the list and it's like, okay, this gives me an idea because some of it is related to our basic needs for food, for sleep, for exercise, things like that. But some of it's related to connection. Sometimes it's, I need to understand. So maybe I need to have a conversation with somebody. So I can also share that needs inventory with you that the Center for Nonviolent Communication puts out because it also gets the wheels turning if you're like, I don't know what need I have. Okay. So yeah, that might be another thing. And just, you know, like there's a whole lot of resources out there on like well-being wheels and things that you can do, like self-care plans and things like that. And, you know, like whether that's your jam or not, I think being able to recognize grief impacts us, whether we recognize it or not, in the same ways that we talk about well-being. So it's going to affect us from an emotional perspective, a cognitive perspective, a physical perspective, a spiritual perspective, and a social perspective. Like it's going to impact, it can impact our, like, sometimes we withdraw when we're grieving. And so, okay, how do I tie in these well-being practices that are also very much, can also very much be a part of what I do 
when I'm noticing that grief is what's happening. And grief is when there's a loss, whether that is through a death or whether it's your favorite patient left your practice because they're moving away and that makes you feel sad. Like that can come happen too. Like it doesn't have to just be related to death, although that's what we often talk about. So yeah, well-being, the reason we harp on well-being is because it is so important and it's linked to so many things that are just a part of the human experience. Absolutely. And so we'll get all those things put in the show notes. But if students are wanting to reach out to you or find out more information about you, where can they do that? They can find me on, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Serena Manifold. My private practice is Authentic Healing Counseling. So they can Google Authentic Healing Counseling and hopefully I'm a hit on there. Yeah. And that's probably the easiest way. Okay, wonderful. And we'll put all that in the show notes as well. But I want to say once again, thank you so, so much for coming and chatting, kind of doing like a mini therapy session. I really appreciate it. (laughs) So I didn't intend for that to be the case, but here we are. But yeah, like I said, we'll have to bring you back for future episodes. But for you guys who are listening, thanks for joining. And we'll listen, well, not listen, we'll talk to you guys all next week. All right. Bye, guys. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also, leaving a review of the show on iTunes would be greatly appreciated because, again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Bet Life.